14 or 15 years ago while we were in college, my cousin and I decided that what we wanted to do is we wanted to buy backpacks and traverse the whole of the Smoky Mountains. Now, at the time, we knew virtually nothing about hiking, virtually nothing about backpacking. And so what we thought we would do is we would start at the beginner course and go at to one end of the Smoky Mountains, go on the Appalachian Trail, and hike all the way to the other one with 50 pounds on our back. And we did it in January, okay? The easiest time of year, of course, to go on a trip like that. And, and, and we chose the most aggressive route possible to be able to make this hike. And so we went and we would begin at a place called Davenport Gap. Now, Davenport Gap, in the first mile and a half, you climb 2,000 feet. Okay, so that's scaling the entire height of Mount Chihaw compressed into a mile and a half. And so we get there that morning and man, we are filled with optimism. We are filled with energy and zeal. Like this is the moment that we've been waiting for. And we lug these backpacks on us and snow begins to fall. (laughs) The high is like 20 degrees that day. And so we begin to make our way up this ascent, gonna go and make ourselves, find ourselves to a shelter by the end of the day. And as we begin to climb, you know, we start off and we're talking and we're yelling and we're singing and we're doing all the goofy stuff that guys do when none of y'all are around. And then as the day goes on, as the day goes on, you put one foot in front of another foot, in front of another foot, and you kind of have this love-hate relationship with the trail, you know, where you're excited to be there, you're thankful to be there, and you hate your life, and you're ready for it to be over. And you would see on this trail, you would see these crests in the mountains, and you would think, you would think, I'm almost there, I'm almost there. And you would climb up, and you would get to one of these crests, and then you would realize it just switchbacks and goes up even higher. It's just really the beginning of another climb. And so we begin to climb, and as we begin to, to get four and 5,000 feet high, we begin to, the snow began to fall harder and harder, so much so that you could take a step, and immediately the step was filled in with a blanket of snow. You couldn't even see your tracks. And the sun began to set, and by the time, as the sun began to set, the pandemonium and the panic began to set in, you know what I mean? And so you're sitting there and you're trying to coach yourself through it and you're trying to convince yourself that it's all going to be fine and you're you're gonna be able to make it to the summit and you're gonna be able to get to the top. And then there's another climb. There's more steps. They have these steps built into the side of the mountain. And for a lot of us, that's how our lives feel, isn't it? For a lot of us, that's how the Christian journey feels, isn't it? That it's like we believe that if I can just get over this hurdle, if I can just summit this mountain in my life, if I can just reach the crest that's in view, when I get there, then it's going to be smooth sailing. When I get there, then my health is going to be fine. When I get there, then the anxiety is going to subside. When when I get there, then I will have greater courage and then I will have greater joy and then I will have greater peace. And what we find It's that as we summit these mountains, as we approach these crests, that our lives switch back and it's really just the beginning of another climb. And so we get to a place in our lives in which we're just beaten down. We're disappointed. 
They aren't at all how we pictured them. We don't feel at all about them as we thought we would. In fact, we might even say, I don't even know that I would call myself happy, just less worried or more worried on any particular day. But what we're going to see this morning, what we're gonna see in our text is that the more that your mind goes there, that the Lord intends for our minds to go to our home that is to come. That Christ has come so that we can traverse these mountains in our lives. And so that as we pursue their summits, that we might have joy now and we might have joy everlasting. And so if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35. Could be in Isaiah chapter 35 and we'll read all 10 verses together. When you get there, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Isaiah 35 says this, it says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Now, as we read Isaiah, brothers, it's important that you try to see the picture in your mind. He's painting a picture with words. So I wanna encourage you as, you, as we read this, try to paint that picture with your, with your mind. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame men leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. When we come to Isaiah chapter 35, in the previous 10 chapters of the book of Isaiah, there have been six different oracles of judgment against the people of God. That the judgment of God is going to be exercised against the people of God first through Sennacherib, which is going to happen in the very next chapter through the, the king of Assyria, and then ultimately through the exile that will take place at the hands of the Babylonians. And so you have here a group of people that are worried who are filled with trepidation and filled with fear and filled with concern. They know that the judgment of God, the hand of God, the wrath of God is to come upon them and they're trembling. But here is Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 is like seeing a cloud filled, uh, seeing a sky filled with dark gray clouds and then a beam of light shining through it. 
That's Isaiah 35. It's the beam of light, the hope, the drink of water in the midst of the desert because what it teaches is that the judgment won't last forever. In fact, the judgment is going to be be displaced with joy. The judgment is going to be displaced with the gladness of the people of God. The trembling is going to subside. And when the trembling subsides, it will be displaced by praise and glory and worship and thankfulness to the good news of Christ. That the whole joy, the whole universe is ultimately going to be saturated with joy because the whole earth is going to be saturated with the majesty of God. And so what we see in our text and what I want us to see this morning is that this is what Jesus came to accomplish. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. This is what he came to accomplish when he inaugurated the kingdom. And this is what he will accomplish when he finally comes and consummates the kingdom, that Christ came to accomplish total joy for his people. And in our text, we're going to see at least three different ways that Jesus accomplishes total joy. The first way that I want us to see is that Jesus revives joy, that Jesus revives joy. You see the picture. He says in verse one, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. And so the picture here is a resuscitation of something that has long went dormant. It is life being breathed into a barren land. It is feast coming to the famine. It is resurrection coming to the cross. You can imagine what it would be like if we were to go to the Saharan desert. And being in the Sahara desert, we were to look over the vastness of the landscape. And as we looked over the vastness of the landscape, there was an instantaneous transformation. That there where there is barrenness, there where there is nothing, suddenly cedars of Lebanon, the greatest trees that you can imagine, the great towering giants of their day begin to appear suddenly from the ground as though they are full grown and have been there for centuries. Beneath the canopy of those great cedars of Lebanon would be flowers that are all in full bloom simultaneously at the very same time. It's as though the hand of God has painted them himself. The sand, the towering dunes that were there suddenly turns into a pool of water that is springing and bubbling out of the ground. The ground that used to, com- used to communicate death, the, the ground that used to communicate fa- a famine, now is suddenly bubbling forth with life. And throughout this whole landscape, this water bubbling from the ground is streaming and going toward the mountain of the Lord. The picture here, in other words, is the picture of a garden, isn't it? It's the picture of a garden. It's the picture of the transformation of a desert into a garden. And so what we see, if you'll remember last week, we said that this is a wilderness of stumps, reduced to stumps by the judgment of God. But now, but now, this wilderness of stumps, this desert of death is being transformed into something that is permeated with life, permeated with the very majesty of God. In fact, permeated with gladness and singing and joy. You see, back in Genesis chapter three, or Genesis chapter one and two, we have a garden put there, don't we? We have a garden put there. 
Man is put there to live in intimacy with God. Man is put there to rejoice in the presence of God, to have the knowledge of God, to walk in the ways of God, to be able to fellowship with him personally and knowingly, to live as reflectors of his glory, to look everywhere they can see and to see all of it as a stage for the Almighty, to put on display his goodness and on display his wonder and on display his majesty. And then mankind decides to build his own kingdom. Mankind decides that he wants to be the king, that he wants to be in charge. And immediately a curse comes upon the whole creation and man is cast out of the garden. But there's a day coming. There's a day coming in which the garden will be revived in which the joy of the garden will be returned, in which man will again portray perfectly the image of God and walk in the majesty of God and know personally and intimately the fellowship with God. There is a day coming in which we will breathe in the glory of God the way that we breathe in oxygen right now. It's amazing the way that he phrases verse two. Let's read verse two together. It says, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And there is a shift here in the book of Isaiah. There's a shift here in the book of Isaiah. Up until this point, In the book of Isaiah, the word, the majesty of God was to communicate the terribleness of God, the fearsomeness of God, the the way that it would strike awe in your heart as you look and behold him. To, To think of God's majesty was to think of his power as the sovereign as his ability to to smite those who come against him and vanquish those who rebel from him. But in Isaiah chapter 35, In Isaiah chapter 35, it's not there to communicate his sin incinerating, bone shaking holiness. No, his majesty is there to communicate a refuge worth going to, a shelter where you can run and take cover, a place where you can find comfort, not fear, where you can be steadied, not trembling. There's a shift in the book of Isaiah where the majesty of God goes from something that you fear and is transformed into something that you run to, not from. And this is the difference that Jesus makes, you see. This is the difference that Jesus makes. Jesus is the difference between dreading the majesty of God and enjoying the majesty of God. Jesus is the difference between dreading the majesty of God and enjoying the majesty of God. If you were going your own way and you were living by your own good name and you were trying to be good enough and measure up, if you're trying to build your kingdom in this world according to your wisdom and your ways, let me tell you, friend, you ought to fear and dread the majesty of the Lord. You ought to fear the one whose throne you're attempting to overtake. You ought to fear the coup in your own heart as you attempt to overthrow the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings from his throne. But if you are his son, if you are his daughter, if you are his people, come on, come.
come before the throne of the Almighty. Come before his majestic pleasure. Come before his majestic might. Come to his majestic kingdom and take refuge there. Be comforted there. See, that's what Jesus came. That's why Jesus was born to the virgin. That's why he was placed in swaddling cloths and lying in a food trough. That's why he came. He came so that we might be able to survive the majesty of God and not only survive the majesty of God, but rejoice in the majesty of God and enjoy the majesty of God. You know, Isaiah 53 is gonna gonna use, in in the book of Isaiah in chapter 53, Isaiah is gonna use the word majesty again. Except in that chapter, he's going to use it to describe a servant that's going to suffer. Uh, It's going to be a, a prophecy of the Messiah, of the one who is to come and to make a way so that sinners can go and rejoice in the majesty of, the, of, of God. And do you know what Isaiah 53 says about the, about the majesty of the suffering servant? It says that he will have no form of majesty. That our king is going to come to his own kingdom, to his own people, and he is going to deny himself the rights of his own sovereignty. He is going to deny himself the dignity of his own majesty, and he is going to take all of his goodness, all of his majestic holiness, all of his majestic righteousness, all of his majestic sincerity, all of his majestic law-keeping, and he is going to place that upon sinners. And he instead of the sinner, and he instead of me, and he instead of you is going to be crushed and striped and beaten. That he might take everything unmajestic about you, everything sinful about you, everything wrong with you, everything bad about you, everything that's in your reputation, everything that comes into people's minds when they think about someone that lies like you and cheats like you and exaggerates like you. He's going to take that from you and place it upon his own majestic shoulders. That there will be a way where there was no way that there will be rejoicing where there was not rejoicing, where there will be gladness where there was not gladness, that you no longer fear the majesty of God, but now can enjoy the majesty of God. And you can imagine for Judah 2,700 years ago, how stunning the picture must have been. Here they are and they know Assyria is coming. They know that Sennacherib is going to lay siege to them. They know that exile is coming. The judgment of God is coming. And here's Isaiah. And he's teaching them that God's judgment is going to result in gladness. God's judgment will result in gladness. It would have been inconceivable in every way possible. But brothers and sisters, God doesn't judge because he's mean. God judges because he's good. God doesn't judge because he's mean. God judges because he's good. God judges for harmony and purity and gladness among his people. He judges to wipe away the obstacles to his glory. If there was a king and he was ruling over his kingdom and there were uprisings against him that were preventing him from being able to care for his kingdom and being able to to love his kingdom and provide for his kingdom and protect for his kingdom, if there was a coup attempt in his kingdom, there would be nothing but goodness in him that would squash the rebellion that he might provide for his people and defend his people and love his people and serve his people. This is the kind of king that we have. This is the kind of king that we have. Jesus was sent because of God's goodness. 
And Jesus was sent to save you from God's goodness. What a paradox. That Jesus was sent because of God's goodness to save you from God's goodness. Jesus came that you might be spared from the goodness of God by giving you his goodness and by taking from you your badness. Jesus gives you something of his own majesty that you might enjoy and not fear, access and not flee, the majesty of your very own king. And so there's an invitation given to us by Isaiah. An invitation that was given to the people of God that day and an invitation that's given to the people of God at Iron City Baptist Church this morning. And it is trust in God. Trust in God and be glad. Bring your sin to God and be glad. Take cover in God and be glad. Run to the majesty of God and have yourself overcome with gladness in God. Find your joy, find your happiness, find your hope, find your peace, find your answers in God. Let your joy be revived, that is. Like a desert being transformed back into a garden. The second way that we see that Jesus accomplishes total joy is that Jesus releases joy. Jesus releases joy. Verses three and four really allow us to see inside of the minds of the people of God. Look at what it says. I mean, this could be written about the church today, right? Like this could be written about us. Verse three, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. So you have the people of God and they have Assyria and Assyria is closing in on every side. You, you can imagine here they are in Jerusalem and they can know as far as they are, they can hear the cries of their enemy and they can see the smoke coming up from the encampments that's around their city. They know what is to come and they know that they are bearing down and they know, they know that God is going to give them over to their enemies. And so you can imagine as their people prepared for war, as, as the men were, were getting ready and sharpening their spears and preparing their bows and getting ready to ride off and to fight what is certainly their ongoing demise. As the women and the children were back home wondering if they would survive, wondering if their cities would be ransacked and sieged and destroyed. You can imagine how their hands trembled no matter what they were doing or no matter where they were going. You can imagine how their knees were knocking and how their knees were weakened and how their hearts were racing. And so Isaiah says, do you find yourself anxious? Do you find your, your hands trembling and your knees weak and your heart racing? Don't be afraid. Be courageous. Fear not. That what we see described here is the opposite of joy, isn't it? What we see here being described in verses three and four is the opposite of what he is promising in verses one and two. The opposite of what he says will be uh, accomplished in verses eight through 10. It's the opposite of joy. It's us lying in our beds awake, running through everything that's wrong in our lives. It's us in our cars driving to work, picking at the scab of our own bitterness having imaginary conversations with people that we've had imaginary conversations with every single day for three years. 
It's going and rehashing all of the reasons in our lives that we have to justify our worry and justify our unbelief and justify the reason that our knees shake and that we're filled with anger and that we're filled with, with, with meanness and the desire for retribution and vengeance in our lives. This is what he's talking about. And so when he looks at us and he says, be strong, fear not, I don't know about you, but that's almost offensive, isn't it? There, there is nothing more discouraging, just, just, just FYI, there is nothing more discouraging to tell an anxious person than to say, stop worrying. You have someone who's struggling to catch their breath. You have someone that, that feels as though they're, they're being overcome and that the enemy is pressing in from every side and that their lives are closing in on them to smother them. And then you say, well, stop worrying and be courageous. Well, thank you, buddy. That's what I needed today. I wish I'd have thought of that a long, a long time ago. Why didn't I just think I should not worry? Huh? Why did I just come up with that? So here's Isaiah. And he has a vision from God. And the vision from God says, fear not. Fear not. Be courageous. Don't let your hands tremble. Don't let your knees knock. Don't let your heart race. No, no, no. Be strong. Be strong and fear not. But the difference is Isaiah tells us how. Isaiah tells us how. Be strong and fear not by beholding the might and the majesty of God. Be strong and fear not by beholding the might and the majesty of God. You see, the people of God are not defined in the scriptures by their faithfulness. We are defined instead by our unbelief. We are not in the scriptures defined by our strength. Instead, we are defined by our weakness. But, but, but he is our God and we are his people. He has covenanted with us to defend us and to provide for us and to secure us and to hold fast to us so that he will never let us go. He is strong, though we are weak. He is faithful, though we are filled with unbelief. So our only hope at strength is to behold his strength. Our only hope at courage is to behold his majesty and to realize that his majesty is for us. And if he is for us, who can stand against us? You see, there's a promise at the end of verse four, isn't there? Do you see the promise there? <laughs> Man, this is good. He will come and save you. He will come and save you. Behold your God. He will bring recompense against your enemies. Behold your God. He will flatten Assyria. Behold your God. Nebuchadnezzar is his, pu his puppet. Behold your God. He will come and he will save you. He will come and he will save you. Church, do you see Jesus here? Do you see Jesus here? Do you see how all of the Bible, even those that were written 700 years before the birth of the virgin are all about Jesus? Jesus is God coming to save you. Jesus is God coming to save you. Jesus is God answering the promises of God, satisfying the promises of God, fulfilling the promises of God. So Isaiah paints a picture for us. That's what verses six and seven or five and six are. They're, pic there's a, they're a picture for us so that we can know what this pit will look like when God has come to save us. 
He, so, so he not only says, hey, don't be worried. God's gonna come and save you. He says, this is what it's gonna look like. This is how you will know that God has come to save you. This is how you will know that God has come to deliver you from your enemies and to pay recompense to them and to put you back where you were rightfully so supposed to be the whole time. He says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. He says, how will you know? How will you know the curse of Genesis 3 is gonna be reversed? There's gonna be a transformation and a reversal that is going to take place within the creation of God simultaneously. Romans chapter eight says that the whole creation is groaning. It's groaning, it's moaning out, crying for redemption, crying for restoration, crying to be released from its shackles, released from its slavery to sin, released from its curse. Do you know why there are children's hospitals? Because of Genesis 3. Because of Genesis 3. The reason there are blind people and deaf people, the reason there are, are paraplegics, Genesis chapter 3. Because man tried to assert himself over God. And when man tried to assert himself over God, God brought all of the world beneath the curse out of his grace. Rather than crushing man into fine dust and removing him from the earth, he allowed him to continue to live and have the potential of knowing him. Though the earth was cursed and broken and filled with suffering. But that's going to be reversed. From the, from the seed of a woman... The, the serpent may bruise the heel of the seed, but the seed will crush the head of the serpent. He will come, you see, and he will save you. He will come and he will save you. And so we see the earth itself being brought back from a mere shadow of itself to its former garden glory. That now children who are born blind will be able to, to see not just God himself, not just his majesty, but their own sinfulness, their own death to sin and be regenerate and made new. That those who once couldn't speak at all will be singing a new song in their mouth that has been placed there by the Holy Spirit filled with the grace of God and the majesty of God. Those who couldn't hear will hear the word of the Lord and believe. They will hear the good news of the gospel and hold fast to the gospel. Those that were wheelchair bound, bound to lay or drag their legs wherever they went, will get up now and they won't just walk, they will dance and they will leap for joy. Do you hear the word of release that's in here? Do you hear the word of release that's in here? See, before the mute person, even if they wanted to please God, even if they wanted to praise God, they were, they were in bondage. They were incapable of saying the words. They were incapable of, of singing the song. They were incapable of declaring the praise. But now they're not just talking. They're not just talking. Every inhibition in their life has been overcome. Every reason for discouragement has been overcome. Their praise has been released from their lips. Do you see this? Before the lame person, he couldn't dance and dignified before the Lord like David. He was incapable. 
He had nothing but reason for discouragement as he drug his legs from place to place. But now, but now, his reason for suffering, his reason for discouragement, his reason for being disenfranchised with the goodness of God has been released. And now his dancing has come forth. He is leaping like a deer because God is good and his majesty is pervasive through the whole kingdom. The curse has been reversed. Their joy has been set free. And this, y'all, is the mission of Jesus. Jesus came to set joy free. Jesus came to set joy free. You'll remember back in Matthew chapter 11, when the disciples of the final prophet, the final Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, he's in prison and he's gonna ultimately have his head lopped off his shoulders for his devotion to Christ. And he's in prison and he does what so often, you and I, I find such comfort in this, John the Baptist does what you and I so often do, he begins to doubt Christ. Did I make a mistake? Did I preach the wrong sermon? Did I point to the wrong savior? And so he sends some of his disciples to go and to find Jesus and to ask him, are you really the one? Are you really the lamb of God? Are you really the savior? And do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus quotes Isaiah 35. He quotes Isaiah 35 to say the majesty of God has come. He has come and he will save you. Jesus says, go and tell John, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. There's a sweet invitation here for God's people. There's a sweet invitation here offered to Judah, offered to you. On the difficult days of God's providence, you'll feel your praise inhibited. As you go and you take your kids to the doctor and you aren't sure of the diagnosis, you'll find your praise to be inhibited. As you go to work and you, you aren't sure about your company's future or how your job's gonna go or how you're gonna provide for your family, you'll feel your hands begin to shake. As you come and you have to tell your wife the news that you've never thought you'd have to tell her and the news that you never wanted to have to tell her about the loss that you've suffered together in your marriage, you'll feel your knees go weak. As you face uncertainty, as you climb one crest only to realize it is the beginning of yet another crime, you'll feel your heart begin to race, but Christ has come. And so we can now behold our God and take our shaky hands and raise them up to the heavens. We can take our feeble knees and bow them at the altar. Because as you see, your God is the one that turns deserts into gardens. Your God is the one that plants flowers where there was desolation. Your God is the one that takes death and springs it to life. Your God is the one that takes the towering sand dunes around you and turns them into springs, bubbling sources of life. Your God is the one that takes famine and transforms it into feasts. And so as you have those shaky hands, as you have those feeble knees, as you have that racing heart, behold your God. Oh, that's a sermon you need to preach to your worry this morning. That's a sermon that you need to preach to your anxieties today. That's a word of encouragement today that you need to hold fast to. My God replaces death 
with life. My God replaces nothingness with everything. My God displaces my wickedness with his own majesty. Behold your God this morning. The final way that we see Jesus accomplish total joy is Jesus ransoms joy. Jesus ransoms joy. Look at verse eight. It's really an extraordinary verse. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools. Man, that's a, that's a thank goodness promise right there, right? It's foolproof. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. So he completes the picture. He says, yeah, there's going to be towering cedars of Lebanon that are going to form a, a shady, refreshing canopy over the landscape. Beneath that canopy, there are going to be flowers of every color painted across the ground so that the ground is lush and plentiful. As much as there was sand and dryness and barrenness, now there's going to be water springing from the ground and there's going to be a stream cutting through the whole of the garden. But you see, through the garden, there was not supposed to be a way for man to get there. In the garden, there was not supposed to be a way. Man has been banished from the garden. Man has been exiled from the garden because we aren't holy. We aren't holy. And the garden is a place filled with the majesty of God. And the majesty of God incinerates unholiness on sight. But in the midst of the flowers, beside that stream of life was a path. A way of holiness cut for us. A way of holiness cut for me and cut for you. A way of holiness that was placed there, not by my own efforts, not through my bushwhacking, but rather according to the grace of God where there was no way, God made a way. You see, you, you were enslaved to your sin. You were in bondage to your sin. And Jesus, your own king, bought you out. He paid the ransom for your sin and for your freedom at the cost of his own life. And now, now there's a way. If you would have went to, the, to Judah that day and you would have asked them to, help, to describe to you the goodness of God, the first story that they would have went to was God's delivering them out of Egypt. They would have told you about the plagues that came upon Egypt. They would have told you about how God parted the Red Sea. In fact, the very same word for divide is the word that we see here where he says that the, the ground is going to be divided and the streams are going to appear. They would have told you about how bread was rained from the sky, about how they were guided by the pillar of fire. They would have told you about how water spilled out of a rock. They would have told you how Moses met with God face to face on top of Sinai and how he came down, emanated, illuminated with the glory of God. They would have told you about how God led them right up to the promised land. And even though they were unfaithful and even though a whole generation was not able to go, they would have told you how then they went into the promised land and went into Canaan. They would have told you how they marched around the walls of Jericho and Jericho fell to, its, fell to its own demise, though they had no power themselves to defeat them. 
They would have told you how God would have delivered them, even though, even though they were unfaithful and got, were defeated by a tiny country named Ai. They would have told you about the Exodus. The Exodus was their greatest story of the goodness of God. But in the middle of the Exodus, what we find littered and scattered throughout is the unfaithfulness of God's people. What we find littered throughout is the judgment of God coming against his people, even in this great story of redemption. Moses himself was not allowed to go into Canaan, the promised land, because of his unfaithfulness. But there's a greater Moses coming, church. There's a greater Moses coming who is going to lead his people on a greater exodus, the exodus from this cursed world, the exodus from the curse of their sin, the exodus from the oppression of the flesh, the exodus from the death of their own trespasses. And they are going to be ushered into a place, to a ransomed land, which they will never be banished from, which all of the giants have been slain. And they will have there, it says, an everlasting joy. And as much as their enemies press in on them, so their joy will press in on them. And as much as their enemies are going to flee them, so will misery flee them because this greater Moses will not be defeated. He will not be defied. And the people of God will have the joy of being a ransomed people living in a ransomed land. You see, this morning, you were an enemy combatant an enemy combatant imprisoned in the court of the king. Do you realize that? You are an enemy combatant imprisoned in the court of the king and you were preparing to face your own judgment according to his tribunal. Except this king came down off his judgment seat this king climbed down from his very own throne and he says, take me to the gallows. Take me before the firing squad. Take me in my majesty. Let me lay it aside and take the place of my combatants that the coup of their heart might be overturned by my grace and by my majesty that now they might walk in my ways and live in my kingdom and rejoice in my ways. And so the decision that's facing you and the decision that's facing me is whether or not you will live free or die. Whether or not you will live free or die. You see, if you want joy, joy only comes through freedom. And what Christ has offered to you, what the King has come and accomplished for you is a freedom that isn't just for a little while, an exodus from sin that isn't just temporary, but instead freedom to be enjoyed forever. Oh church, oh church, live free this morning. Live free in the joy and the majesty of the Lord. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at nine o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.